All right, good morning. Welcome to Grace Point Church. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and open up to Galatians chapter 4. Galatians chapter 4 will be in verse 21. Twenty-one, and we'll be going to chapter 5, verse 1. Uh, let's pray. Father, we do thank you and praise you for this day. We thank you for your word. We thank you uh, for this beautiful location that we have to gather uh, to worship you and fellowship and singing and studying of your word. Lord, as we turn our attention to the letter of Galatians again, we ask, Father, that you would Lord, help us to understand what's being said here. This is a, a passage that does require some thinking and for us to consider the line of reasoning that Paul is using here. And Father, we pray that at the end of this study, you would help us to see that we have a, a choice to either be free or to live in slavery. And so I, I pray, Father, that you would help us to understand the promise that you made to Abraham, the promise that we have in Christ, and that we have the the freedom to live for you and with you under grace. Uh, This is a concept that is so difficult for us because we live in an environment where everything has a cost. There's a, a price to pay for basically anything, and if if there's value, we think it has to cost a lot. And so, Father, I pray that you would help us to see that the gift that we have available to us in Christ through the promise of Abraham uh, came at a steep cost to Jesus on the cross and that it, it's, it, it's not truly free. It's something that was paid for and we benefit of this gift that was paid for for us. And so I pray, Lord, that as we go through this passage, you would give us a clarity of thought, and that your word would make it to our hearts, uh, that we would truly walk with you in freedom and in grace. We love you, Father, and we pray this in his good name. Amen. In Galatians chapter 4, verse 21. Tell me, you who want to be under law, do not listen to the law, for it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by the bondwoman and one by the free woman. But the son by the bondwoman was born according to the flesh and the son by the free woman through the promise. This is allegorically speaking for these women are two covenants, one proceeding from Mount Sinai bearing children who are to be slaves and she is Hagar. Now, this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free. She is our mother, for it is written, Rejoice, barren woman who does not bear. Break forth and shout, you who are not in labor. For more numerous are the children of the desolate than of the one who has a husband. And you, brethren, like Isaac, are children of promise. But as at that time 
he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the spirit. So it is now also. But what does the scripture say? Cast out the bondwoman and her son. For the, death, for the son of the bondwoman shall not be an heir with the son of the free woman. So then, brethren, we are not children of a bondwoman, but of the free woman. It was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. And Father, we do thank you that in Christ we have been set free. We pray that you would help us navigate this section of Scripture. And it's in Christ's good name we pray. Amen. All right, so, so today's passage can be difficult. You read it through and you kind of go, what's, what's, what's he saying? And the, the big picture of Galatians, what's happening here is Paul has been making this sort of legal argument for grace, for justification through faith alone. He is fighting against the Judaizers who have been making this case that you are not saved by grace alone, that you come to Christ and to complete the deal, you have to be circumcised and you have to observe the Mosaic law. And if you maintain these Jewish traditions, then you'll be okay before God. And so today's section really is, if this was a, a courtroom scene, this would be Paul making his closing argument. He got very personal last week. He, he reasoned with emotion and the, the, the pain and the sorrow that he sees in these individuals sort of departing from grace and being won over by the Judaizers. And so today he's going to make a, a sort of an unusual argument that we don't see in the New Testament that often. He's going to reason from an allegorical method, uh, which we'll get into later. And I think that the reason that Paul is doing this, while this, this sort of way of interpreting Scripture isn't very uh, common, or, or not even Scripture, just this way of arguing in general, we don't go to the allegorical method. But during this time in history, using allegory to make a legal case was super common. And so I think what Paul is doing is he's, he's going to their, uh, their way of reasoning, and he's going to make a case from Scripture using allegory, which is something that is uh, something that we shouldn't necessarily do, but we'll get into that later. So he begins with his opening question. Uh, this is a, a statement. Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? And so he's, first off, he's identifying those that he's addressing. He knows that amongst the Galatian believers, like I've said a ton of times, these people have responded to the gospel that Jesus died for them. He paid it all. It's by grace that you stand justified before God. He knows that in his wake, these Judaizers had come along and they had a very, uh, their argument was persuasive and they were being led off course. And so he asks these individuals who are being tempted, they sort of have, they're straddling the line. One side is on grace, but these Judaizers had made a strong case. And so he's saying to these individuals who are about to drift over to the other side and to follow the law and to go through uh, the, the Judaism process of, of uh, if you want to be blessed with, by God, then that means that you have to do these things, these conditional things. And he's saying, you who desire 
to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? And he's saying, it's a, it's a pointed question. It's almost sarcastic and, and in their face. He said, you think you know what you're talking about, but you don't know the law. You don't know the Old Testament. And he's going to give them an education in the air of their thinking. Remember Paul, who is this, this great rabbi who studied under Gamaliel. And as we read Philippians chapter 3, he was a Pharisee. He was of the tribe of Benjamin, circumcised on the eighth day. He was zealous. He was passionate for Judaism. In many respects, he was a Judaizer before he came to Christ. And so he's going to show them the error in their thinking. His question is, don't you even know what the Old Testament says? And then in verse 22, he says, for it is written. He's going to reference the Old Testament. If you want to sort of begin making your way back to Genesis chapter 16, that would be good. Uh, He says, for it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave woman, but the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. Now, in this section of Galatians, if you write in your Bible, this is something for you to do when you get home, if you're going to continue your study and sort of follow the line of thought, is you can follow in today's section sort of two words or uh, categories. The, the first is the flesh. And so the category of flesh, we're going to go back to Abraham. We're going to follow Hagar, her son uh, Ishmael that would come through Hagar and sort of all that she represents. And the broad category that she represents is the flesh, which means that if instead of trusting God's word, you're going to take matters into your own hands and you're going to do good deeds, good works, try to be a good Christian, try to Do all the things that the Bible says, not because God has saved you, but because you're trying to earn favor with God. And you can kind of follow that that flow of thought. Then the other contrasting thought in there is the promise, dealing with the Abrahamic covenant. And we follow Abraham through Sarah to Isaac and the covenant of the New Testament sort of by grace that Our relationship with God is based on God's word, based on his promise, not based on our own works, but based on what God says through his word. And so he makes this case. He goes back to Genesis chapter 16. And let's look at this first line of thought. All of these individuals, the Judaizers and these new Christians, they all link themselves back to Abraham through the promise that was made between Genesis chapter 12 and 15. Early in Galatians, we looked at the story a number of times. And just to sort of refresh your memories, this is where God tells Abraham to get a whole bunch of animals. Then Abram got the animals. He split them in half from head to toe. He placed them in a ravine. So all of their blood flowed to the bottom of the ravine. Abram gets terrified because he understands that this promise or this covenant that God had made with him, that what he's asking him to do is to fulfill his side, that this is how you made a covenant back then. You would splice the animals in half. You'd have the blood. The two individuals would walk back and forth and say, if I, if I don't fulfill my, prom, my side of the deal, then may this be me 
may this be my blood that is shed. And the other individual, if they didn't fulfill it, the same thing. And so as Abram's laying this all out, he recognizes that the conditions by which God is laying forth, he can't do it. He's terrified. And as the story unfolds, God puts him to sleep. And then God himself walks between the blood. And it shows Abram that the covenant that God is making, it's totally conditional on God. It's based on the promise that God was making. And in that same section, I believe it's in Genesis 15, verse 6, where we're told that Abram believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. And Paul makes this case in Galatians. He makes this case in Romans that Abraham's relationship with God was based on grace alone, not on his works. And so he takes us back to the story. And in Genesis chapter 16, sometime after this promise had been made, Sarah had a hard time believing God. The math didn't add up. They were supposed to have a child through whom all of these promises were to be brought forth. But the problem is, is Sarah is barren. She's never had a child. She can't have children. Abram is basically getting to the point where he is beyond childbearing years. And so in chapter 16, verse 1, Sarah, or Sarai at the time, has a great idea. Let's take matters into our own hands and help God out. And we read now, Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children, and she had an Egyptian maid whose name was Hagar. So Sarai said to Abram, Now behold, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Please go into my maid. Perhaps I will obtain a child through her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. So Abram says, that's a great idea. Let's go ahead and take matters into our own hands. We know that God said that he would deliver a child through me and you, but that's just ridiculous. So let's go ahead and from a human perspective, take a direction that we can help God out. We'll use your servant. We'll have a child with her. And this will help God out in delivering his promise that he made to us. And then we fast forward the story. This doesn't work out so well. We skip ahead to Genesis chapter 21. Abram now is 100 years old. Sarah's 90, still barren. The situation is still dire, but God is going to deliver on his word, on his promise. Then the Lord took note of Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did for Sarah as he'd promised. And she became pregnant and she had a son named Isaac. And so we have the unfolding of these two lines back to verse 22, just to reread what Paul just wrote. He said, for it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through a promise. And so he's educating them on the Old Testament, this line of thinking that they had sort of missed. They who wanted to follow the system of works and this system of sort of checks and balances. They do good and God blesses them. 
And if they, at the end of their lives, if they did more good than bad, then God would deliver on their promise to redeem them. And so Paul's saying, you don't even know the Old Testament. If you go back to the story, Abram had two sons. And you're very confused on which line you're actually following. We who are of Christ follow the, the line of Isaac through Sarah, the line of the promise. The path that you're following in good works, you're following the other line, the line of the flesh, the line of those who say, I'm not going to trust and take God at his word. I'm going to do my own thing in my own system. And this category basically is a wide net that expands on every single religion that depends on a system of works that outweigh uh, supposedly the bad you've done so that at the end of your life, the scales hopefully are tipped in good versus bad and that you'll be okay when you die. We hear this all the time when somebody dies, whether they're of faith or not. Well, they were a good person, so they're in a better place now. That sounds good according to the flesh. That sounds good according to human thinking. But it's not what the Bible paints the picture to actually be. And so Paul is laying out this choice. We each have a choice. Do you want to be of the line of slavery? Or do you want to be of the line of the free woman in Christ? And we have a choice to make. And so he's laid out this sort of the the biblical account of the Abrahamic covenant. And in verse 24, he says, now this may be interpreted allegorically. These two, these women are two covenants. And so he's going to expand on this. He says, I'm speaking allegorically, uh, which what this means, according to Swindoll, allegorical interpretation has been defined as searching for a hidden or secret meaning underlined but remote from and unrelated in reality to the more obvious meaning of a text. This is where you read the scripture. And there's the plain meaning and rendering of the language that we have before us using history, grammar, context. And you say the obvious plain meaning, that's not the meaning that was intended. We're looking for something under that level that's secret, mysterious. There, it's, it's actually saying something different. And this is a very dangerous game to play. When I first came to faith in Christ, there was a really popular book going around called The Bible Code. And apparently these guys had, had cracked some secrets within the Bible by, by counting every single letter. And if you, like it was some code that God designed. And wherever they end up, they end up. This is not something we should do. We should not allegorize Scripture. Scripture should be read in its plain meaning. The text that is on in the front, that when you read it, what it says, the simple and plain meaning, that's what's meant. The exception, like today's case, is if the Scripture, it says, it, it says, I'm going to now speak to you using allegory. allegory. And this is exactly what Paul does. He says, now this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. He's going to explain to us in the coming verses that Sarah reflects 
the line of the covenant that God made with Abraham. And Hagar reflects the covenant that God made with Moses, the the Mosaic covenant through the law. Continuing in this verse, one is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. He's saying every child that Hagar had, she was, uh, they were of slavery. Hagar herself was a slave. Ishmael was born. She, he was a slave. And he's saying anybody who adopts the system of works is actually going into this category of slavery under Hagar. That they want to live by the Mosaic law, then they're going to live by the Mosaic law and it's going to lead to separation from God. Mount Sinai, the giving of the Mosaic law, Ishmael, child of slavery. Then he says, this present Jerusalem. Now Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia, and she corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. And so he's saying at that time of writing, and you could probably make a case for today, that the whole Jewish system following the Mosaic law, which reflects modern-day Jerusalem, specifically at the time of Paul's writing, everybody who's endorsing the Mosaic law and saying that you have to adopt the Mosaic law in addition to your faith in Christ, they reflect slavery. This is not a good place to be. Anybody who desires to try to attain peace with God through doing good works or observing the Ten Commandments, or the 613 laws that are found in the Old Testament, it's a dangerous place to be. He goes on to say in verse 26, but the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. And so he transitions from the Jerusalem below, the Jerusalem found in Israel, the actual city. And he says that the Jerusalem above He implies, he's inferring that what he's speaking of, although he doesn't say it, is that he's referring to the Abrahamic covenant, the promise that was given to Abraham. And he says, those that are under the promise, the case that he's made in Galatians chapter 3, he says, those that are of the promise, who are living by faith and have adopted grace as their means by which they stand justified before God, they're a part of the heavenly Jerusalem, the Jerusalem above. He goes on to say in verse 27, for it is written, rejoice, O barren one who does not bear, break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor, for the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who had a husband. What he quotes here is he's going to Isaiah chapter 54, verse 1. And it follows this beautiful passage that so often we read on, you know, sometimes Good Friday, sometimes we read it on, uh, on when do we read? Sometimes Easter, sometimes Christmas, I think, is when we, we also read it. Isaiah 53 is the suffering servant, this picture of Christ coming as the humble Messiah who would give his life as a ransom for all. Following this, 
Paul says, Isaiah chapter 54, verse 1, he, that Isaiah is referencing these two lines between the free woman of Sarah, that there's going to be rejoicing happening from her. This woman who is barren suddenly has a, a, a child. Everyone who would respond in faith would be grafted in as Abraham's children. And he says there'll be more than those of the one who had a husband. And he's referring to Hagar, who wasn't the wife, but he's referring to the, the one that was able to bear children. And he's going to explain this, thankfully, in verse 28. He goes on to say, now you brothers, which I love this. He's, he recognizes that these individuals have given their life to Christ. He knew them early on. Last week, he pleaded with, remember, like not pleaded, but he reflected on his time with them, how they received him, how they loved him, how they responded to the gospel as though Paul himself was an angel or Jesus himself. He knew where they stood and they were being tempted right now to depart from the truth that they know. And he doesn't call them apostate. He doesn't call them unsaved. He's still referring to them as his brothers in Christ. He says, now you brothers like Isaac, the other line of Sarah are children of promise. But just at that time, he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the spirit. So also it is now. And so he's going back to the story still in Genesis. Um, I don't think I'm going to go to the passage yet, but as you, as you watch that story unfold in Genesis chapter 21, Isaac would be born. And then the story uh, continues and we see that there's tension between Hagar and Sarah and the children, and there's, there's animosity and bitterness, and there's a war. And then ultimately, where Paul's going to share with us is that the one was kicked out of the family. One was told to get out of there. And so he says, just as they persecuted Isaac and Sarah in present day, you shouldn't be surprised that they of their line in this present form are persecuting you, referring to the Judaizers. Grace is so often attacked by religion. It just doesn't make sense. And Paul is saying they're attacking you. They're trying to tell you that there's a better way to get to God. And you shouldn't be surprised because it happened then and it's happening now. And in verse 30, he says, but what does the scripture say? Cast out the slave woman. And her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So now he's quoting from Genesis chapter 21. I'm going to go back there and I'm going to read this section. In Genesis chapter 21, Isaac has now been born. God delivered on his promise. And in verse 8, we read that the child grew and was weaned. And Abraham made a great feast on the day that Isaac was weaned. Now Sarah, the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, whom she had borne to Abraham, mocking. Therefore, she said to Abram, drive this maid, drive out this maid and her son, for the son of this maid shall not be an heir with my son Isaac. The matter distressed Abram greatly because of his son. But God said to Abram, do not be distressed 
because of the lad and your maid, whatever Sarah tells you, listen to her. For through Isaac, your descendants shall be named. And, the, and of the son of the maid, I will make a nation also because he is your descendant. So Abram rose early in the morning and he took bread and a skin of water and gave them to Hagar, putting them on her shoulder. And he gave her the boy and sent her away. And she departed and wandered about in the wilderness of Beersheba. This story unfolds. There's so much here that we can't unpack. If you follow the, the present tension in the Middle East today, so much of what we see in the Middle East today is directly related to this passage. If you go to the Islamic world and you go to the, the Dome of the Rock and you talk to a Muslim person in Jerusalem at the Dome of the Rock where Isaac was sacrificed, you ask them to tell their story of why the Dome of the Rock is important. And what they do is they follow the line up through Ishmael and they say it was actually Ishmael that was sacrificed at the Dome of the Rock by Abram. And so this whole tension, this, this promise that God gives to the, to, the, to the Arab world of oil and power, it, it's not shocking that when you look today and you see the Arab world, their hatred for Israel in the land, there's, it's, it's beyond the scope that we're going to be able to talk about today. But the tensions in the Middle East are spiritual tensions that won't be resolved by us politically. Uh, that's the bottom, I mean, it's just the bottom line, and we see it here. And so here, this picture, the reason that Paul quotes from this at the, in verse 31, he says, so brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. Jesus would make this same case in John chapter 8. If you'll turn with me to John chapter 8, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and John chapter 8. Jesus is speaking to a group of individuals. And in verse 30, John chapter 8, verse 30. We read, as he spoke these things, many came to believe in him. So Jesus was saying to those Jews who had believed in him, if you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine. And you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. They answered him, We are Abraham's descendants and have never yet been enslaved to anyone, which is hilarious. Like, do they not remember the whole story of Moses in Egypt? Moses in Egypt? Do they not acknowledge their present reality, being under Roman rule, not free to do the things that they desire to do? How is it that you say you will never become free? Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is the slave of sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son does not remain the son does remain forever, excuse me. So if the son makes you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are Abraham's descendants, yet you seek to kill me because my word has no place in you. I speak to the things which I have seen with my father. Therefore, you also do the things which you've heard from your father. And so there's this tension. 
the point of what Paul is saying and the point of what Jesus is saying is the Mosaic law had a time in history, but it was to be done away with. It was to be concluded and it would be kicked out and the free would remain in Christ. And this is what they're pushing back over. And Paul says, so brothers, we are not children of the slave. We are not of the Mosaic law. We are of the free woman. As he writes in 325 in Galatians, but now that faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. The whole point of the Mosaic law was to lead the individual to Christ, to lead the individual to freedom. And now it has been set aside, or as Paul says, it's been kicked out. It's been kicked out and has no place in the Christian life. Chapter five, verse one, finally getting into sort of, he's concluded the legal case. Chapter five and six get more uh, into application and, and relevancy and how does it apply to our life? And he says, for freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not again, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. He says, Christ has set us free. Jesus's work on the cross has liberated us from this system of works, this system of uncertainty, never knowing if you've done good enough to please God. Jesus died on the cross as your substitute, as my substitute. He paid the price in full. Our relationship with God has totally been transformed, that we can walk in freedom. We live for God and we serve God, not because we're trying to earn favor with God, but because God has demonstrated his love towards us and has washed us in his grace and we stand clean. We're free from the the guilt and the shame of our past. He has totally paid it all. And so when we end this section, it, it, it begs the question, how do you stand before God? How are you justified before God? Have you thought about this? Have you considered your life and how you're living? And effectively, there are only two ways that you can answer this question. The first answer is, in essence, I'm a good person. And when I look across at humanity, I believe that I've done more good than bad as I consider the average human being. I am in the top 50%. And therefore, it's a nice car. <clears throat> if you're in the top 50%, that somehow in that 50% line, then God is obligated to send all of those people to heaven. And everybody under the 50% mark, all of those people go to hell. And so the vast majority of the people in our world say, I'm a pretty good person. Because we can justify little sins for ourselves. And if you're thinking this way, you're actually a slave of the line of Hagar. And you're functioning in the flesh. You're saying, I don't need God. I don't need anybody. I'm going to do it in my own strength, in my own way. And unfortunately, under this thinking, you're condemned and you'll never make the cut. The other answer is Jesus was my substitute. I bring nothing to the table. I'm a sinner. All of the accusations that the devil brings your way, you simply say, that's absolutely true. 
I am a sinner. I've done a lot of wrong. I've missed the mark on more than one occasion. But the deal is that Jesus came and lived the perfect life and he went to the cross for me. And I don't understand it, but the Bible tells me that he was my substitute. And this God man who did no wrong, all of the wrath of God that was due me for my sin was placed upon him. And God tells me in his word that if I believe that I'm justified. And if you answer along those lines that you're effectively a justified sinner, you're of the line of Abraham who believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. This is a confusing section, but Paul is making his closing argument to them and he's pleading and showing from scripture that there is nothing that you can do to get right with God by your own merit, your own strength. As we stand here today, this is the most important truth that we can be faced with in this lifetime. We are told that Jesus loves you. He's died for you. He's paid your debt in full. The only thing you need to do is to respond in faith. And when we understand grace, it utterly transforms our lives. It transforms our understanding of this God who created us. We wake up in the morning and we praise him and thank him for saving us. We thank him for his forgiveness. We thank him for his grace. It changes everything. And so my prayer today, as you are faced and you consider, are you a slave of the line of Hagar or are you free through the work of Christ due to the Abrahamic covenant? My prayer is that you would choose this gift this promise that God has made for us. And Father, we do thank you and praise you for this promise. This section is, is technical and difficult, but Lord, I pray that you would see, help us to see these two lines of thought leading to Abraham, that we have a choice to be grafted into the line of Sarah, who had Isaac, the line from whom Jesus ultimately came, this line of promise. Father, I pray that you would help us to respond to the promise. I pray that you would help us to live according to the promise, to live according to grace. Father, a system of works and the system of the Mosaic law is so easy, easy to creep into our thinking. To think that we have to carry our weight, to carry our load, to hopefully do enough good that you might love us, that you might save us. Father, I pray that you would show us our errors in this sort of thinking, that you would free us from legalism, and that you would help us to truly understand grace and to master it and to live in it. We thank you that you love us so much that you sent your one and only son to be our substitute on the cross. We thank you for this exchange that we can receive simply by believing. We pray, Father, that you would help us to be believing as John records at the end of his gospel.
And it's in Christ's good name we pray. Amen.